Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. This is your host, Pete Quinones. I invited Scott Horton to return to the show. Scott is the managing director at the Libertarian Institute, host of Anti-War Radio at Pacifica 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. He is the host of the Scott Horton Show, over 5,000 interviews, and he is the editorial director at antiwar.com. I asked Scott to come on today to answer questions about U.S.-China tensions. Is there a chance of a hot war or at least a very hot cold war? He also answered questions about reports that Russia is putting bounties on the head of American soldiers in Afghanistan. And then we finished up talking about whether the United States' forays into the Middle East have anything to do with the color of the people's skins. Scott answers that question and uses it as a jumping off point to bring it back to the United States and the police problem we have here. It's going to be a little different than you might think. So without any further delay, here is Scott Horton. Scott, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you? Doing good. I wanted to have you on to ask you some questions about some of the foreign policy stuff that people just seem to be overlooking because of everything else in the news that we've been inundated with. So I am going to start off with China-U.S. tensions. I got a message from Tommy Sammons, who his podcast is hosted on the Libertarian Institute. And mm-hmm. he was asking me about this. Uh, a couple people have been asking me about this. What do you see as the probability that this could turn into something hot? What, India and China, you mean? No, I'm talking about U.S. and China. Oh, jeez, uh, I would say very low. I mean, look, we have a tremendous interest in not fighting them. Now, it's true that there are some very narrow interests who kind of fantasize about taking them on, but I would say they hardly exist outside the Navy. And even in the Navy, they know that means sinking to the bottom of the ocean for many of them. And so, you know, I think ultimately the Cold War against China and Russia, just like the last Cold War, Uh, They are designed to, I don't know if it counts as one Cold War or two now, Pete. They're not really allies the way it was perceived to be back then. But then again, there was a Sino-Soviet split long before the Americans recognized that and exploited it anyway. But anyway, these Cold Wars are not designed to annihilate humanity in thermonuclear warfare. They're designed to make a lot of money for the people who make these governments capable of doing so but pushing us only up to that point and so you know because ultimately a war with china would mean the loss of all of our most important cities probably Uh, they have about 300 nukes so that's enough to destroy our civilization no problem whether we could do it back to them and then some is kind of beside the point at that point when none of us live to exist to regret murdering a billion Chinese who 99.9999999999% of which didn't do anything to us. When you're talking about a population that size, right? I didn't do the math, but I'm just approximating. So, um, 
same with Russia and, and our stance in Eastern Europe. But I'm also first in line to say that it's all still incredibly risky and could lead to war. You know, I was having a conversation with uh, Jason Ditz from Antiwar.com yesterday on my show about China's confrontation with India in the Himalayas. Now, ultimately, there's some freshwater resources up there and this kind of thing. But there's no real reason why they got to fight about this line, which is hardly a line on some crazy mountainside, you know, out there where no one could possibly really conceive of anything like that. It's very vague that they essentially um, and this went under the radar a lot. The two, you know, major nuclear armed powers, the two most populous societies on the planet, India and China, had these skirmishes on their you know, pseudo border there in the Himalayas where they've had one major war there back, I think in 1960, certainly in the sixties. Um, and uh, fortunately both sides get this were disarmed. And so their armies fought with billy clubs and spiked pieces of rebar and tens were killed on both sides. I mean, talk about a battle. Um, I don't know if anybody uploaded that to Twitter or what, but, uh, and they may have, um, there's bloody fighting there, but they had all been disarmed by their commanders in order to prevent this kind of thing from getting way too out of hand. Um, and then there's been a lot of tough, uh, tough talk since then. And this kind of thing does happen. But anyway, my point being, as Jason Ditz was explaining that they don't really have anything to fight over there, at least now, other than national pride. But national pride is something that is very hard to quantify. And sometimes in some places to some people, and especially in some moments, it's more important than any other thing. That backing down in the face of those other guys is absolutely inconceivable to especially military minds. And you'd like to think that they would be the most sober of all when it comes to that kind of thing. But yeah, I remember when India and Pakistan were first testing their nukes in 1998. i never forget this clip of this Pakistani general telling the news media, you tell those Indians, we said, we're not scared of your atom bombs. Bring it on. Essentially, I don't know, bring it on. But we're not scared. It doesn't matter if you're scared or not. I mean, if they're really fusing plutonium atoms nearby you, you're dead, dude. So, <laughs> and, and maybe your whole civilization with it. But that kind of, you know, posturing and bravado can lead directly to war. And, you know, for people who've looked closely, there are books about this and articles about this people can find. There are at least 20 major, almost accidental nuclear wars with the Soviet Union or Russia between the U.S. and the Soviet Union or Russia. I'm not sure how many uh, false alarms have almost led to nuclear war with China. That would be interesting to see. There's been at least 20. And, of course... Once H-bombs start going off between the U.S. and Russia, essentially they're launching at least a thousand or two each at each other and completely obliterating the northern hemisphere, all of, you know, setting humanity back centuries. You know, there'd be some people in the, in the southern hemisphere who would still survive. Uh, certainly all of our civilizations would be completely obliterated. Uh, but all of humanity, I mean, it's a self-inflicted wound that is just... It's frankly, it's inconceivable that humanity has allowed our political leaders to create this situation. And it's in the name of this mutually assured destruction that we're talking about. This is why we can't fight because D.C. and Beijing would both be at risk. 
And so therefore they'll never do it. Cross your fingers. We hope, but talk about the ultimate Mexican standoff, mutual suicide pact for the entire species or for, you know, entire civilizations of billions of people at a time that this is our status quo 25 years, 30 years after the end of the Soviet Union. And for that matter, you know, 45 years since we made peace with the Chinese. And this is still we we have the world in a thermonuclear standoff still. A sort of Damocles that all of the rest of the history of humanity could have never imagined a situation like this. And and one that any of us, if we're honest, can't imagine lasting as a sustainable situation into the future, into the centuries. We're going to have nation states armed the teeth with thermonukes from now on, and that's going to keep the peace from now on. It's worked since the Russians invented the A-bomb in the 40s, a few years after us. And since the Chinese caught up a few years after, well, not till the 60s, really. but And so in this little blip of time, in the decades since, it's kept the peace. And so that's the prescription from now on. I mean, I don't think anybody believes that, right? Uh, some famous guy quoted some famous mathematician, I can't remember anymore, saying, hey, the probability that these things are going to be used in anger is greater than zero. What does that mean? That means they will be used at some point. And again, once they start going off, it's incredibly hard to back down. Can you imagine an American president letting Russia get one off on us and we don't nuke them back or vice versa? Or China, for that matter. Um, but then again, at the same time, so think of a situation like this. The, Ameri the Chinese are acting tough in the Taiwan Straits, and the Americans send the Seventh Fleet to start acting tougher. And then deliberately or not from the highest chain of command, some colonel issues an order to fire a supersonic missile and sink an American aircraft carrier with 3,000 people on board it. And then what does President Trump do then? What does President Biden and his National Security Council do when we lose an aircraft carrier to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean? Back down and say, sorry, take Taiwan. What the hell were we thinking? At that point, it's too late for that. They're going to act crazy. They're going to do something wrong. So it's, you know, there's no reason we have to fight them. That's the question. But is it the kind of thing that our government could blunder into? Yeah. I mean, look. Our empire is falling apart and they're projecting all of just like they did, you know, on the Russians with the election here. They're projecting all of their loss of power onto avarice by the Chinese, that they are here to take over and run the world empire in some nefarious Beijing centered new world order to replace ours. And yet that's not true. I mean, we're talking about China. This is a civilization where they consolidated their empire. What a. 3,000 years ago or something and have not taken over the world since then when they could have. I mean, they've only really been in the position of weakness against the rest of the world for the last century or so. Um, but before that, they were the most powerful civilization in the world and they never had, you know, the uh, intent 
to uh, act as America's been acting in our mimicking England and trying to create a world empire here. And if they're watching America closely over the last 30, 40 years, then they'd be absolutely insane to try to mimic what we're doing. Send our mili- send their military hither and yon to dominate the Middle East and Africa and Latin America and wherever. Central Asia. They'd be crazy to try to do that. Empires murder suicide. Everybody knows that. So here we are faced with, yes, yeah, sort of a rising power in the sense that the USA, the central part of North America, is no longer really the dominant power in Eastern Asia. I mean, okay. But really that's in in a large sense been true since 1949, right? Since Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan back then. So, um, but in terms of what does America have to lose? If China builds a highway to Lisbon, Portugal, and most of humanity then trades up and down that highway, how does that cost the North Americans? What do we suffer from that? There's no reason to think that we do at all. I mean, if you're a right-wing nationalist or some kind of left-wing socialist or something, then, you know, I don't know what your economics tell you about that. To me, that just means more wealth for all of humanity to share in kind, in a free market, as free as can be. So, um, you know, I think it's a it's a fake threat, but I think if you ask, you know, everybody at AEI and Brookings and the Council on Foreign Relations and the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and whoever – that, you know, they're all looking at the challenge of China and how are we to contain their rising power, which is, again, a great excuse for the militarists, for the the uh, Navy and the Air Force to build up their departments, for the weapon salesmen, the shipbuilders and the long range bombers and the fighter bomber, uh, you know, big ticket item manufacturers to, for all them to get on board for that. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. And, and I, it's exciting too, right? It's a, it's a new enemy to be afraid of and figure out how to defeat and all that kind of thing. So it's got that sort of, um, viewer participation kind of an angle on it too. You know, the yellow peril, come on, everybody, let's all be concerned together. Well, my thinking on it was, to get into a hot war with China or even like a, a super intense cold war, I would assume that MSNBC and CNN and the New York Times would have to be 100% behind it, just like Iraq War Two. Or do you think that you know, 17, 18 years later that we're in a different – things? Oh, no, different. I agree with that. I mean – Look, it's it's Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were the authors of the pivot to Asia. There's nothing more acceptable to the, you know, centrist liberal style media than that, the corporate media than that. I mean, they don't want what Trump wants, which I don't know if he even wants this, but he talks about, you know, severing all trade and this kind of thing, uh, you know, completely divorcing uh, the interdependence of our economies in a way that certainly the establishment does not want that. But whatever uh, economic interests flow around in the circles and the, the revolving doors and the iron triangles of the uh, think tanks, the big media, 
and the military industrial complex firms, I mean, they're all essentially in on this consensus together that whatever they can waste, they want to, whatever they can spend and, and whatever project they can support in terms of foreign policy, politics stops at the water's edge. We all agree more bombers, more fighter bombers, more ships. If they don't work, I mean, you look at the, the literal combat ship where it's like the F-35 of the sea. It's completely useless. It's completely useless. And they've admitted over and over again, oh, yeah, no, I mean, like, if there was a war or a battle or something, we couldn't use it then. <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we can, we can use it for PR stunts and things like that to impress congressmen. But, uh, yeah, no, as far as serving... You know, an actual purpose. Yeah, no, we don't have any, you know, quote unquote purposes for it. Um, you know, but at a cost of hundreds of billions of dollars to develop this thing and to deploy it. It is a complete joke. So forgot how I got off on this tangent. But, um, I was just I was just asking. Oh, the, if, media. Uh, the, the media. Yes, it would be acceptable. It would be acceptable for the consensus to support Cold War with China as long as it doesn't mean the complete breaking off of, you know, uh, other corporate trade at the same time. You know, they want to have their cake and eat it, too. All right. Let me move on to Afghanistan. I'm pretty sure that you saw the reports, quote unquote, reports that Russia is putting bounties on U.S. soldiers heads in Afghanistan, and they've actually paid out a couple already. Well, you know, the New York Times version and the Wall Street Journal version both of whom, you know, have reporters I respect on their bylines, uh, Charlie Savage at the New York Times and Warren Strobel at the Wall Street Journal. But both of them simply report that an intelligence report said that. That's all they claim. They don't develop the story at all. They don't have other confirming sources saying, yeah, here's how we know it's true. In fact, in the New York Times piece, everything is phrased that Essentially, you know, brackets, if this was true, as then as they put it over and over again, that would show X, Y, and Z. And they use the phrase would, would, would over and over again. In other words, conceding that they don't actually know that this is true at all. They're just, you know, it'd be like if I report to you just some hearsay. You know, David said something about Sally. And then you're supposed to say... Well, you don't know that what he said about her is true or not. You're just listening to me and I'm just reporting to you the fact that that was the discussion. I don't know whether it's true. I'm just saying that that was what they said. And now you're supposed to go, wow, really, huh? But that shouldn't be impressive to us in any other circumstance. And particularly when it comes to the war in Afghanistan and accusations against Russia, whether separate or combined. I mean... They leveled 100,001 accusations against Russia in the last four years, all of which were false, all of them. And a few of those included Afghanistan. There were multiple reports put out by the military trying to claim that the Russians were arming the Taliban against us. And then as proof, they issued no proof at all, just a picture of some weapons. And in fact, the guys at Task and Purpose, the military website, soundly refuted and destroyed the CNN claims. And I forgot what was the other publication that ran the thing at the same time and said that this is just an absolute joke and disproven by the guys at uh, Task and Purpose. 
Um, and so, and meanwhile, look at what they're obscuring. They're obscuring the fact that Russia's been our side in the Afghan war this whole time. Why is that? Because we've been on their side. America switched sides in the Afghan war. In the 1980s, we supported the Pashtun Mujahideen insurgency against them, remember? Now we're supporting the Uzbek, Tajik, and Hazara alliance against the Pashtuns, mostly. I mean, that's somewhat oversimplified, but not too much. And the Pashtuns, as led by their most potent political force, of course, the Taliban. And the Russians have been helping the Americans to keep the Taliban at bay this whole time. They helped George Bush invade the place in the first place, allowed him to go through Russian territory uh, with his planes, uh, uh, got the, the governments of the stands to open up access to former Russian bases there or current Russian bases that were still there. I'm not sure, but at least former Soviet bases to open those up to the Americans to go in. And when the Pakistanis cut off the southern route of supply in 2012 from the port of Karachi up through the Khyber Pass, the Russians said, go ahead, Obama, and opened up the northern route of supply into Afghanistan again. They've been helping us fight in this whole time. Any reports, if there's any validity to uh, reports that the Russians are now talking with and working with the Taliban, it's only to keep the Islamic State at bay. Because the ISIS fighters are the ones who are the expansionists, you know, the ones who claim... Uh, to be, you know, uh, descendants of or representatives of the former caliphate in Iraq and Syria. They're the ones who have all these pretensions to, uh, you know, power outside of Afghanistan. The Taliban are homegrown nationalists. Well, a lot of them grew up in the refugee camps in Pakistan, but still, they're Afghan. Uh, they're Afghans and nationalists, and they want their Islamic emirate. None of this, you know, Zawahiriite world revolution crap. And so what happened was, you know, the Americans lost the war. And if you want to fight ISIS, you know what? You can ask the Americans about this. They'll tell you. If you want to fight ISIS in Afghanistan now, it's not the Green Berets. It's the Taliban who are the best bet. If they were smart, what they would do, well, I don't know if this is really smart. I say just cut and run. I said that all along. I still say that. I wrote a book about it. Get the hell out. But at least what... They could do from their own perspective, all other things being equal, is – and this is what they didn't even try to do during the surge under Obama, which is to ally with the Taliban. That was the, the so-called surge awakening in Iraq was to take the enemy insurgency and say, no, actually, you know what? We love you guys. You're fine. Here's money and guns. Let's just target the last few Arabs we can scapegoat around here or – say, some Pakistani refugees calling themselves ISIS now, some former uh, Pakistani Taliban on this side of the line. We'll ally with them against those bad guys and call that a win and go. But that's all the Russians are doing. The Russians are essentially just like in 1989. They're recognizing that the Pashtun insurgency has won. And in fact, ironically, even though they're the American's enemy there this whole time, it's the American-financed Afghan Mujahideen insurgency against the American occupation, just as it was against the Russian one, because of, as I show in the book, all the tax money that the Americans have paid to the Taliban, hundreds of millions of dollars a year 
to allow the American to provide protection, to provide security, literally to provide security, but also in the larger sense, overall, quote unquote, protection for American convoys of supplies and of troops to their bases so that we'll be allowed to fight them. Money that then they spend on all our best weapons that we give the Afghan military, that the Afghan military sells to them on the black market, that they turn around and use against our guys and theirs. So, um, and of course, all this started in the first place because on July 3rd, 1979, Zbigniew Brzezinski had Jimmy Carter sign this executive order authorizing the CIA to begin support for the Mujahideen in order to try to provoke the Soviet Union into invading to support their sock puppet dictator. And then a policy, of course, continued through Reagan, um, which ultimately did, uh, which first of all, did help to lure them into invasion in the first place and then help bog them down in a losing war uh, that did help to break the back of the Soviet empire at the end of the 1980s. And, um, and then, you know, what's funny about this too, one more thing is James Jeffries, who is Donald Trump's guy on Syria is saying, ha ha, you know what we're doing to the Russians in Syria is we're bogging them down and we're bleeding them to bankruptcy we're creating oh his words were where he wrote this i think um that uh or, or i guess said it in a speech we're giving we're creating a quagmire for russia well what's that that's the policy what we did for to the soviet union in afghanistan in the 1980s but that's the policy of what osama bin laden <laughs> did to us in the 2000s and the 2010s and dude up to and continuing to the present day, where we still have approximately 10,000 American combat forces in Afghanistan, where <laughs> this is exactly the same strategy that we are doing to ourselves, uh, that our government is doing to our country, at the same time that they're bragging about how smart they are that they're doing it to the Russians again. And which means what means, by the way, in Syria, helping to, you know, encourage, I guess, the Turks to continue to provide protection for the al-Qaeda terrorists in the Idlib province to keep the Syrian government dependent on Russia, which is costly for Russia. I guess the price is worth it to support Abu Muhammad al-Jalani, who is still from al-Nusra, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham who is still blood oath loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher in New York City. But, hey, 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 we're creating a quagmire for the Russians in Syria. Aren't we clever? So, now you want to talk about some hearsay about an intelligence report with no details at all even described to the reporters at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal with no clear linkage whatsoever to the death of any American, uh, whether Green Beret or Marine there fighting, um, when even if true, that would simply be a tit-for-tat, almost a practical joke against the Americans by the Russians as we're on our way out. And then look how they use this. Even in the Wall Street Journal article, the context is, this treachery comes as Donald Trump is trying to get us out of there. As in, it just goes without saying then that no, 
if the Russians are nefariously paying the Taliban, if the Russians are nefariously paying the Taliban to kill our guys in Afghanistan, well, that just proves on its face no explanation forthcoming. That just proves on its face why we have to keep sending troops there for them to kill. Otherwise, what? Like national pride with India and China in the Himalayas. One of our guys looks like a fool. Looks like a weakling backing down in the face of his enemy. So better send somebody else's son to die and to keep dying. We can't leave now. Didn't you hear that after 20 years of supporting the American position in Afghanistan, the Russians have decided that it would be funny to kick us in the ass on the way out the door? So therefore, we can't leave. Never mind our boohoo scare stories about the Pakistani ISIS in Afghanistan is coming for you. Now it's just embarrassment that those election-fixing Russians are messing around with our terrific victory in Afghanistan. And of course, was it the Post? I mean, pardon me, was it the Times or the uh, Wall Street Journal? It's the Wall Street Journal article, uh, I'm 90% sure, that quotes the prominent Democratic senator saying, oh, see, this goes to show the weakness of Donald Trump trying to get us out of Afghanistan. Uh, he was attacked by another uh, Democratic senator. I almost stopped what I was doing to write an article about this last week. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm spacing on the name right now, but just last week, there was a Democratic senator. And of course, I mean, what else are they going to say, Pete? What else can they say? Except that Trump's planned withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is supposed to you know, be finished by a year from now. That That is hasty and precipitous. What else can they say, Pete? It's precipitous. Donald Trump's precipitous withdrawal in the year 2021. His precipitous withdrawal from Afghanistan is going to lead to, you know, problems there. Say the Democrats. Attacking Donald Trump from the right and not in the Scott Horton rule way, but in, you know, the bad kind. And, you know, who's protesting about that? If you enjoy the show and you feel like you're benefiting from it, please support me on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Mansrader. I just added a $2 level, which allows you to get early episodes. Also on freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash store. I have the same levels as Patreon listed on there, but you can do it by the year and you can do it for cryptocurrency or you can do it for fiat. Thank you very much. Staying in that region of the world, I had written down a couple notes just a question I wanted to ask you. Domestically, there's this conversation going on about systematic racism. And I even saw a debate this week with Bradley Balco and somebody from the Manhattan Institute. And it was about systematic racism in policing. And I didn't think either person made the made their argument. I thought it was just the arguments just didn't make any sense to me. But when it comes to that region of the world, the Middle East, how much do you think, or at all, does it, the concentration there have to do with the fact that they're dark-skinned? The concentration there? I'm not sure exactly what you mean. I mean, the wars. I mean, just 
as soon as the Cold War ends, they go just concentrate right on the Middle East and start going after Middle Eastern countries, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and all these, all the Muslim countries. These are, these people are darker than. Sure. Yeah. Well, listen, I think it has a lot to do with it, man. Um, I, I think very little of it is overt at all. I mean, it's not like anyone said let's exterminate the Arab race or any kind of thing like that, right? It's just that who cares about them if they're that far away? And frankly, you know, I went to a government school in a mostly democratic town. You know what I mean? It's not like I grew up in an extremely right-wing society in Central Texas. I really did not. And yet, and not even and yet, I guess that's the point. Not There's not a yet. It's as I was raised, not again, not explicitly by my family or anything, but just, you know, overall in the society, it's just a totally homo thing to care if your government kills a foreigner in a foreign land. Like, that is the kind of thing that only some really weirdo, dope-smoking hippie would care about. But that for the rest of society, it just sort of goes without saying that we're the ones who have you know, self-evident natural right to life, liberty, and property because we're Americans. But if our government kills somebody somewhere else, it doesn't really matter what color they are, man. If they're Germans, we'll call them Huns. You know, they're, which is essentially, what, German for the N-word. It makes it easier, the darker they are, I guess, it makes it easier for Americans to not care. And I do think that plays into it a lot, frankly, that... You know, as George Carlin said, I'm not really ripping this off because this occurred to me before I heard him say it, but it's certainly true. If they wear funny hats, then essentially that's a marker of how different their civilization is from ours. If they wear totally unfamiliar hats from the kind of hats that we wear, then it's okay to carpet bomb their whole city. You know, ninth grade, when they launched Iraq War One, my friend Travis, I'm calling you out, Travis, and I knew him since uh, uh, preschool. I sure hope he's doing well out there still. He had a shirt that said, nuke Iraq till they glow in bright green letters. They glow green letters. And I agreed. I thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And I remember clapping and laughing and thinking that that was awesome. And can you imagine how big of an explosion that would be to see on TV? Because what? Because I'm a red-blooded American male, period. Not because I was raised to be a right-wing kook. I was just a public school kid, man. That was it. That was my thinking. That was what we all thought. Uh, the one science teacher from another grade or whatever who went to the war because he was in the National Guard, well, he was a big hero and everybody loved him. There's no question whether that was the right thing to do for him to go be in the war. Nobody, nobody cared that Iraqi human beings were being bombed there. And if you did, it was because you're some kind of hippie who just, you know, you're a self-selected outsider of the society. It doesn't matter what you think anyway. And in fact, in my school, and uh, I won't say her name and call her out, but uh, she's still a friend of mine, uh, ninth grade, uh, there was only one anti-war person that I can think of that I knew of in the whole thing. And she was essentially a silly hippie girl in a flower sundress singing all we are saying is give peace a chance which doesn't mean anything or move anyone or impress anyone. 
course, we already gave peace a chance, and that's why we got to go fight Hitler now. Whatever. That's that's not even considered to be dismissed. And so, it's yeah, you know, I it's it's nationalism, but you know, yes, racism is all like tied in with that too. That you know, the browner they are, the less it matters. The 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 less easy it is for the white American majority to identify with them and see them as anything like us. You know, I had a conversation with a friend recently about the Palestinians and how I'm sure probably this would piss people off, but I've said this for a long time that the Palestinians need not just Western style clothes, which they already wear Western style clothes to a great degree, uh, not entirely, uh, but to a great degree. Um, I guess the women, you know, would more often be in traditional Middle Eastern dress. Um, but they need brand names on their shirts, man. They need NASCAR and they need DC shoes and they need, you know, we are, we look just like people in your neighborhood written on their fucking clothes. And then uh, I was, I've said this numerous times, you know, because Americans hardly ever get to see a Palestinian at all. If you do, it's in a movie where they're portrayed as aliens from the dark side of the of Mars or something, you know. Um, and when you do see them, we need to humanize them, i.e. Americanize them as much as possible for the TVI. Sorry, it sucks, but that's reality, you know. And, and I was talking about that with a friend who was talking about the counterexample, which is where pro-Palestinian groups – We'll have a lot of Palestinian women come and do a big traditional dance with all their scarves and all of their stuff. And to them, it's very pretty and very nice, and they're trying to normalize it. But no, man, that is just such bad public relations. You know, it just makes them to the average American. It just means, again, you're self-selecting yourself into the out group. You want Americans to respect your human rights. you got to trick us into thinking you're a human being like us. And that means like us. Sorry. I mean, I'm talking about our society in general. That's the view. I'm just calling the score here. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't have opinions. I just know things. I'm just telling you that's the way it is. And, um, and then look at our terror wars. What's the one that everyone knows the very least and cares the very least about? It's the Somalis. You know, George Bush started a horrible war against those people back in 2001. W. Bush. Now, forget all this Black Hawk Down. That was in 93. W. Bush came in in 2001, and he hired Adid's son, the warlord from Black Hawk Down. Bush put his son on the payroll and turned the place upside down. And by 2006, they'd made matters so bad that the, uh, the formerly sort of anarchic post-communist Somalia formed a state, the Islamic Courts Union, with the sole purpose of defeating the CIA's warlords there. And then Bush sent in the Ethiopian army to completely smash them at Christmas 2006. And we've been bombing them ever since. For 14 years, Pete. We've been bombing them ever since. And accomplishing nothing. And I guess helped drive, um, you know, Al-Shabaab out of Mogadishu, but... Al-Shabaab was the weakest, smallest, least significant part of the Islamic Courts Union before the Ethiopian invasion, the American invasion. So the only reason there was an Al-Shabaab to take over Mogadishu 
is because America had smashed the Islamic Courts Union that had overtaken Mogadishu. And the only reason that that had even happened was in defiance of the CIA's support for murderous warlords when there were no Al-Qaeda guys to hunt down and kill in the first place. You know, they claim they were looking. I swear to God, this is true. You can look in the Washington Post. At the time of the invasion of Somalia in 2006, the Bush administration told the Washington Post. This was no scoop. This was, you know, their explanation. Well, there are three men that the FBI wants for questioning who are suspects, criminal suspects, you know, presumed not guilty in the USS Cole bombing. And we want to find them and question them. And so that's why we're doing this war. And so in the name of hunting down and finding three men, they launched the war. And hundreds of thousands of people have died since. And part of it is because of the massive famine of 2010 through 12. And then there was another one, 2017 through 19 or so. I don't know. And now they got the locusts are coming for 2020. I mean, for I don't know what it's going to be after the, the current locust crisis. But back in 2010 through, you know, 11 into 12, there was a massive drought and it hit Kenya and Ethiopia too. But it was the Somalis who starved to death. And that was because of the American war there. Because, they, you know, the farmers have been unable to plant their crops or, you know, the ones that were were unable to harvest them. Or if they were... They had no transportation to get them to a market that wasn't open to customers who did not exist. The entire distribution, the entire capitalist structure of food distribution in the country was, you know, smashed, driven into chaos by the war. And so the Somalis just laid down and died on the side of the road by the hundreds of thousands. You know, it was a quarter of a million people, Pete, by 2012 had died. And yes, okay, again, that was the sun, but there's, it, the drought did not lead to famine, did not lead to famine in Kenya or Ethiopia. I mean, it was hard times. There was not famine. The famine was caused by the war more than the sun. And that's America's fault. And the Americans don't give a damn. And you want to call that stru uh, you know, structural racism? I would buy that. I mean, isn't it? I don't know exactly how you quantify that. I don't think you can find a TV news producer saying, no, we don't care about that because those people are black. It's just that they don't care about that because those people are black. And frankly, again, it's the American empire that's doing the killing. And that is fine. Even under Donald Trump, that's fine. In fact, again, the narrative about Donald Trump is, oh, my God, he wants to get us out of some of these wars. You know, the Washington Post ran a story about Donald Trump saying to General Mattis when he was Secretary of Defense, I want out of Somalia. Why are we even in Somalia? What do I care who's killing who in Somalia, says Donald Trump. And James Mattis told him, you have no choice. That's in the Washington Post. Now, I'm not saying that's true, but that was James Madison's pe uh, James Mattis's people told that to the Post, clearly. So why says to the president, I says, you have no choice. And so it goes on. And you know what, for that matter, I think that, look, part of the problem with all these uh, terminologies is that they're terminologies. 
But let's talk about structural racism in police. I don't know what Balco and the other guy said in their it, big debate. Institutional. But, they were using the term institutional racism. Okay. Yeah. So, look, everybody try hard to be grown up and just put your emotions aside. And instead of presuming the worst about what everyone else means when they say things – Try to take it at face value that at least they think they're being honest and talking about what it is that they're talking about. It's just we're at this point where everyone is so deconstructionist about everyone else that we just can't get anywhere at all. Fine. Every word out of everyone's mouth always at all times is a lie. Well, how are we ever supposed to discuss anything at all? Right. You got to take at least some things at face value, not in terms of the facts, but just in terms of that people mean what they say. Or, you know, if they say what this term means to me is this, you don't have to agree with that, but you could just understand that they mean it. And that doesn't mean that they are an X just because they understand something differently than you. Like for me, I think structural racism or I'm sorry, what did you call it again? institutional institutional racism i mean that could mean and i think it does mean to me that even if all the cops were black it would still be just as bad right it means that it it means you know it could mean it could be interpreted by some that terminology could indicate that actually the hearts of the cops involved are nearly irrelevant Right. Like there are some of them who just hate black people. There are. Nobody's going to lie about that. Everybody, of course, knows that's true. We saw you and I talked about this the other day. This news story, these guys got caught on their uh, shirt cams talking about how they can't wait till the Civil War starts so they can just start murdering innocent black people. And that was cops got caught and fired for talking like that. So, yes, that's true. But is that the root of the problem? I think not. I think I agree. It's structural, institutional racism. But what does that really mean? It means that black people, disproportionate to their numbers and disproportionate to their rates of actual crime commission, are persecuted by state power. Now, why in the world would anyone think that that's not true when that's always been true? When did that stop being true? I mean, much progress has been made if you want to go back through the history of how things have been. But, you know, look at the prison state where American corporations contract for prisoners. First of all, where American corporations own the prisons and the prison guard companies. And then contract the prisoners out for what, a quarter a day to American corporations for their labor because they found the loophole in the 13th amendment that says that you can't just make prisoners, you know, uh, plant and, and hoe their own vegetables or make license plates, which is a specifically, you know, state oriented product. But now you can essentially enslave them. I mean, where's the essentially even fit in that? And that does mean, yes, you know, out of proportion to their numbers, blacks are being forced in prison to produce like this. We have in this society something that's called the school to prison pipeline. I mean, can you imagine that that is a thing that is real enough that someone named it that and it became named that 
No one said, get the hell out of here with that crazy. No, if that's a real thing. Why well, look at our line graph. And this is how we take kids in school, in government school. We call the cops on them. We get them put in, in juvie. Now they're in the system. Now they're in court. Now they got to go to classes. Now they got to piss clean. And before any time passes at all, their probation is revoked and they're in the penitentiary over nothing. And who does that happen to disproportionately speaking? Right. It's black people. Now, you might say that, no, you know what? All cops have been totally brainwashed by their own government schools into being completely colorblind. And none of them hate black people at all. And none of these laws particularly target black people in any specific way. Um, and yet, okay, fine. Let's just reduce the whole thing then to income. And the fact is, for whatever reasons you want to fight about, I don't care, call it structural racism itself or, you know, call it whatever, uh, you know, uh, problems about black culture that you want to criticize or whatever. I don't care. But for whatever reason, black people in America overall, generally speaking, the median and the mean and the whatever kind of numbers make less money, own less property. And quite importantly, I think, Pete, have less juice in the system. Remember, I don't know what they call it in my town or your town, honestly, but I remember, I think everybody remembers in that TV show, The Wire, where this is the currency inside government bureaucracy is juice. Who owes who a favor? Who can get away with a thing? Who knows a guy who knows a guy whose lawyer can hook you up because he golfs with the judge? I mean, tell me you haven't grown up your entire life since you were a small boy hearing narratives of somebody got lucky or unlucky because their lawyer knew or didn't know the judge in a personal way. Right? We all know that that's how this I'm not man. I, I swear to God, I probably heard that the first time when I was four years old or something. That that's the way the system works. Does your lawyer golf with the judge or doesn't he? Now, if you're poor and black, the answer is doesn't he? Okay, so in that sense, it can all be colorblind and yet still structural institutional racism built into the system itself. And because, look, a cop's job is making cases. A cop's job is cracking skulls. A cop's job is fulfilling quotas. And so they're going to do that in the kind of places where they get the least resistance, politically speaking. I mean, in terms of in your town, if there's a, uh, a violent SWAT raid, and you know what? There are counterexamples to this, like Duncan Lemp, of course. But overall, a SWAT raid in uh, southwest Atlanta is going to get a lot less TV coverage than one on whichever side where the rich white people live. I don't know. I just listen to the goody mob, so I know they're from southwest. But anyway. Buckhead, Buckhead man. You, okay. You, you never heard him name drop Buckhead? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> but listen, man, the point is that um, white people ought to be able to understand why black people think that this whole thing is racist, that it's rigged against them and that it's in a spirit of a spirit of racism. And again, just like we talked about with the wars, it's the indifference, 
right? It's not like white Americans by and large are lusting after the blood of dead Iraqis. It's just that they don't give a damn. And it's not like they're all sitting there vicariously cheering their SWAT team heroes for doing a night raid on a poor black guy over some BS warrant because he got his probation revoked because he got caught with a joint when he was on probation for getting caught with a joint in the first place or something. You know, it's not that they love that. It's just that they don't even know about it. They're not concerned with that. TV doesn't confront them with that. And they don't care. It's on the other side of town. And and mostly they don't even know that it's happening. And they haven't been bothered to say that this is my priority is fighting for people who don't look like me, who live in a different neighborhood than me, who are going through different problems than I'm going through, but deserve my support, you know? And so, and in fact, I'll go ahead and say too that I think that the slogan Black Lives Matter is a huge mistake. And maybe they would be so mad at me for saying that or something. I don't know. But the reality is black people are 13% of the population of the country. And so that means that if they want real change to what they are calling systemic institutional racism, that they need huge numbers of Americans on their side. And shaming all white people that you're all fragile racists and, and you know, presuming sin in people's hearts where they're without evidence and saying that only by somehow redeeming themselves from their racism will police abuse disappear, first of all, is just the long way around to solving the problem of police abuse. But second of all, you know, seems like it might be kind of counterproductive. Uh, telling all the people who you would want on your side that one, this isn't your problem. It's not like white people are being killed by cops when yes, they are. The problem is unaccountable, violent cops overall that hurts everyone of all races and by cops of all races, by the way, too. Right. But it's saying, first of all, this isn't your problem. And second of all, actually, it is your problem. It's your fault, even though you're not a cop. You're just some guy and you didn't do anything. But until you stop being so sinful in your heart, which I don't know you and I don't know what's in your heart whatsoever, uh, the, the cops will never stop beating me over the head. It just seems to me like a crazy way to frame the argument. And then look at the way it's played out over the last six weeks. Right. Is you have these massive protests for Black Lives Matter. But all the attention gets diffused away from what the real title of the movement should be called. And the point, the bottom line, accountability for killer cops. That's what's going on here. And instead now, not just pulling down Confederate statues, but pulling down U.S. Grant. Well, I don't know. Let's just have a big black block circle jerk and let's just. What are we even doing? What are we trying to do? We want the judges and the prosecutors to know that they have to see these cases through. That we are not going to tolerate impunity and immunity for killer police, no matter who they kill, ever. Right? And instead, and look, again, White people, including me, should be understanding of black people's point of view that, you know, if they're still big racist or not even necessarily racist, whatever you characterize math, if they're still Confederate war statues in your town 
you might take that as a real big signal that you're supposed to stay in your place. And that the fact that your ancestors have been here for 400 years, notwithstanding that this country still doesn't belong to you. And you might think that, you know what, that is actually a high priority of mine, so screw you. I, I understand that. But I would also say, you know what, at least while you're doing that, try to keep your eye on the ball and focus on, you know, what really matters here the most, which is cops have, you know, virtual immunity, criminally speaking, de facto licenses to kill. All they have to do is shrug something about a waistband or a furtive movement, and they can walk out of any courtroom in this land in terms of criminal charges and or any grand jury before it even gets to anything serious. And they're qualified immunity from all civil suits against their behavior. And that stuff has to go immediately. And, of course, the night raids. You know, we call them no-knock uh, SWAT team raids. I think it's time to adopt the jargon of the Afghan and Iraq wars. Mike Flynn's Joint Special Operations Command. Mike Flynn and Stanley McChrystal led JSOC to kick in these people's doors in the middle of the night. They call them night raids. Iraq and Afghan war-style night raids that the police forces and sheriff's departments all across this land inflict, yes, again, mostly on poor people, mostly on black people, but on everybody too, that are just absolutely intolerable. How did the American people allow for a minute, even at the height of crime fears of the early 90s, allow SWAT teams that supposedly were developed for hostage situations at bank robberies and such to come barreling in American citizens' doors in the middle of the night, which is exactly, you know what, uh, you're even older than me, so I bet you remember this too. Uh, young people may not know this, but when I learned in government school, my Texas legislature mandated class on communism in fifth grade, the reason we knew we were better than the communists is because we didn't have night raids. That was how we knew. You know how they are over there? The cops come in your door in the middle of the night like monsters. They snatch you out of your bed, and then you're lucky if you're ever seen again. You know, who can forget when Dennis Rodman was interviewed on uh, CNN or one of these, and the anchor says, but in North Korea, Kim Jong-un has 200,000 people in concentration camps. And Dennis Rodman said, in America, we have 2 million people in camps. Oh, the guy, I'm, I, I flubbed the line. The guy said prison camps. We, he has 200,000 people in prison camps. And Dennis Rodman says, we have 2 million people in prison camps. And the anchor says, abda, 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 abda. And so, yeah, man, there's, there's real problems. And, and I get it, too, that the social justice, you know, complaint and crybaby movement can feel as obnoxious as a SWAT team night raid, but yeah, no, it's not really. I mean, they're getting people canceled from their jobs and this kind of thing. It's, it's wrong. I'm not saying, you know, their tactics are justified. They're leftists. I don't agree with them on the things that they think, but I'm just saying they're right about what they're right about. And I mean, for example, that conversation of the cops talking about, I can't wait till the war starts so I can start murdering innocent black people. That was caught on camera the other day, and people can read about this on the blog at the Libertarian Institute. Your sources are there. I forgot exactly which city it was in or whatever, but it was in Florida, I'm pretty sure. North Carolina. Um, that Look, 
if it was some random social justice retard on Twitter crying that yeah, when the revolution comes, I'm going to kill all white people, you would see right-leaning libertarians going, oh, my God, oh, my God. A social justice crybaby on Twitter said something that has me upset. But when it's cops talking about, I just got a new rifle last week for the very purpose of murdering people. Which is, you know, to a great degree, the cause of what all those social justice whiners are upset about. Yeah, I think you need your cart before your horse. I'm not too worried about crybabies crying. And you know what? I don't work at a major institution where my livelihood is at stake if I get canceled for saying the wrong pronoun or whatever. I'm not saying it's nothing. But compared to, you know, the overall movement that's going on right now to roll back police abuse, we should be making our very best contributions to that movement right now. And and look, I mean, these social justice people, they're pathetic, right? So have pity on them. They're not the enemy. They're not the ones who are really the problem. Uh, we should be taking advantage of this situation to, you know, to do the right thing. I mean, we've been saying libertarians. I couldn't begin to list the names and institutions of libertarians who have been great on the police state for decades. You know, you mentioned Balco at the start of this conversation, but there's a hundred of them. You know? The fact that the late great Will Grigg was the very best of them and from our institute, well, that's special. But hey, um, libertarians have been great on this all along. Now's our time to tell them what we've been telling them while they're listening. And uh, it's a great opportunity. And you know what? I'm sure you saw in Colorado, they actually passed some legislation to outlaw qualified immunity. Can you believe that? That's one of 50 states. 49 to go. Well, let's see if that goes through. By the way, talk to me about all this stuff I just said about all the race and the politics and the things. You disagree with me or agree with me or have something to say about all that, you think? Well, I mean, I think I know for a fact. I mean, I've heard police interviewed and I've heard what you said when you started off when you were saying if all cops were black, it would be the same thing. It's 100 percent. 100 percent. I've been told by black cops that they don't trust black people that they look at them differently and that they police black neighborhoods differently than they police other neighborhoods. And that's one, that's 100%. My problem with the only thing you're, I had a problem with you saying is that I don't know that black lives matter actually wants to change police. I don't oh, know. I think they do. You know what? Let me, let me interject right here that I saw in the Washington post where they talked with one of the, leaders of the actual organization there is a legit llc or whatever you know 501c3 it was one of the very official ones and the washington post said to her what is it that you want and she said accountability for the police that was her one you know statement answer accountability all i'm saying is focus that's exactly the thing but I think they haven't lost sight of that. It's just they sort of almost have because it's a forest and a trees kind of a situation, right? Well, it's also like you were talking about you were talking to Danny about vets for peace. You got these guys who go up there and a lot of them are right leaning and you know they can talk to right leaning people 
about what what's going on over there and why you need to pull out. And then you have some frigging commie who jumps up there and starts talking about Mao and Stalin and Lenin. And it just fucks it up for everyone else. Yeah, mm. I mean I mean the the vet who has been questioning, you know, hey, what the, what was I doing over there? You know, the the Iraq War 1 vet who was like, "Really? What was I doing over there?" Now he starts hearing about, you know, communism coming out of Zach yeah. Roca's mouth, and he just shuts it shuts it all off. And that's what happens yeah. with Black Lives Matter too. Yep. Which you know what the funny thing about that, and I absolutely agree with that, is that that stuff never works on me ever. So how come that works on everybody else? How come everybody always has to sign up with some stupid team and believe all the other things that they believe and be so inflexible about stuff like this? Like, how come Kaepernick, with his big stupid afro and his Mao tattoo or whatever, how come he can't be right anyway? Why can't we be on his side, even though obviously... He gets it like what one third at best, but you're saying he's got he doesn't have a legitimate complaint. Why don't you listen to what he's saying? He's saying I'm your quarterback, NFL football hero, and I'm not saying they did anything to me. I'm just saying since I have such a prominent position in our society, would you guys please listen up to me for a second when I tell you that a lot of poor black people feel like they're being treated unfairly? And what, I'm just supposed to boo him and hate his guts because he would have a stupid agriculture policy if it was up to him, which it's not? And then what did the right wing do? Again, with all this deconstructionism and the presumed dishonesty, which itself is mostly dishonest. How dare you slander our soldiers? Huh? You know what? It would have been brave for him to make an anti-war stand, which would not have necessarily been an anti-soldier stand at all, mind you. But he didn't say anything about soldiers or the war. He wasn't talking about the war. He was talking about the cops. And then what is the entire right who don't want to hear it? They can't defend the way the cops treat people. So they say, oh, man, you're insulting my flag. And the flag stands for some guy who died in a ditch in Korea. How dare you assault my tiny little snowflake emotions. And then that argument wins the day. This guy's saying, look, man, I'm your quarterback football hero. And I have something to say on behalf of other people who usually can never be heard. And society's overall answer to that is shut the F up, boy. The entire right wing who will turn around in an instant and call these guys jackbooted cops if they come for your guns. Jackbooted thugs, I mean to say, which they are. Who are totalitarian police state that, oh my God, I feel I may have lost faith in law enforcement over this COVID lockdown, every right winger in America said. But damn poor black people, if they've lost faith in law enforcement over the lockdown they've been under this whole time that hasn't let up yet. And there's, I am tied even with everyone who knows just how bad Maoist economics are. Okay. You can ask Bob Murphy. He'll tell you we're friends. Okay. But that doesn't mean that a Maoist is wrong about cops committing crimes 
initiating aggressive force, hurting innocent people. And I think it's just shameful the way people react to stuff like that. And same thing on the other side, too. You don't like guns because right-wingers like guns? Well, what about all the left-wingers who like guns? What about all the people who aren't political at all, but they fit into all your perfect victim categories? What about a transsexual black man who wants to own a gun? A transsexual black woman immigrant who wants a gun to protect themselves from white supremacists? What about that? The issue isn't right-wingers like guns, therefore I don't think they should be allowed to have, anyone should be allowed to have them. The issue is, what about your own rights? Or someone else that you care about's right to defend their own life? And I just never understood why people are so stuck on that. Part of that's because I'm from Austin, probably, where there's a lot of Democrats in Austin, but I'm in the middle of Texas, so there's a lot of right-wing and left-wing views and, you know, I was just brought up in a way where some of everybody's arguments made sense and many of them didn't, you know? And so I just never felt like I had to be married to any one side. Who could sign up for the whole hippie program? I'm a hippie. I believe everything hippies believe. Huh? Who could, you know, who sign up for anybody's entire program? Other than what's right is right. You know, and speaking of which... Sheldon Richmond has a brand new book coming out called What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. And it's one thing only, non-aggression. And then the whole rest of the book is explaining how freedom works. Liberty works. It all begins with respecting the autonomy of all the other humans. And it's fine. Everything is fine. Everything works fine when people are left to get along themselves uh, without, you know, these kind of controls. And, you know, I don't know. Again, look at the way right now white people in general, in other words, what, 200 million Americans or something, are being blamed for what the cops do. Again, I indicted them a bit for their overall indifference, but still, you know, it's not quite fair. But... That's a, a fight that the government has picked, right? And then, of course, the cops and the government, uh, led by the likes of George W. Bush, did you see this, uh, wrote an essay like this, hiding behind the overall population's racism for the abuses of the government that he created more than anyone else. It was the Bush administration that militarized the police, the W. Bush administration. And he writes this thing about, oh, whoa. When will white people's hearts ever get nice and make these problems go away when it's the cops that he almost directly sent through these people's doors who took their lives, who ruined their lives, who did this to all of us? What a great excuse for the government to hide behind and all the cops too. Oh, look at me. I'm a cop and I'm taking a knee and raising a fist because I'm on your side, guys. Yeah, really, huh? I guess you're an anti-racist cop working in a systemically racist system. That's all. Well, I got to get out of here. So plug anything you want. All right. 
Well, a year ago today, Justin Raimondo died of the lung cancer. And so let that be a lesson to you cigarette smokers out there. If I can quit, you can quit. I smoked for 25 years, uh, starting when I was 11. Um, and But I've been off cigarettes for 11 years now. No, not quite. But anyway, many. I forgot how many. Eight or nine. Um, so it's possible. Um, but anyway, he was a, one of our greats, a lifelong uh, Rothbardian libertarian. Started out a Randian but was a very influential uh, Rothbardian libertarian and uh, mostly essentially co-founder of antiwar.com with Eric Garris and antiwar.com's lead writer from 19, pardon me, uh, about 96, 97 through uh, last year. And um, he was the author of the book, uh, Reclaiming the American Right, which I think people will really like. And uh, if you look at his column at antiwar.com slash Justin, it'll forward you on there. I think everyone will agree with me, especially even in hindsight or back then or what, if you remember. He really was the most important writer in America in the George W. Bush years when it comes to issues of war and peace and overall what was going on in the society revolving around issues of war and peace then. And uh, pretty damn good under Obama and into Trump, too. Um but uh, during the W. Bush years, his stuff was absolutely essential. And so then now my job is sort of I'm kind of the default. I'm in his position as editorial director of antiwar.com. And I don't – well, I'm working on my book. I, hopefully things will change um, at some point in the future that I'll be able to write a regular column more or less the way he did for antiwar.com. Um, but uh, we're doing our best there. Uh, Dave DeCamp and Jason Ditz and, of course, Eric Garris and myself and Margaret Griffiths and everyone, Angela Keaton, um, doing our best to keep antiwar.com Romando-ian. And so uh, that's something I'm proud to do. He's somebody I'm very proud that I was associated with for many years there um, as uh, one of the editors of his articles. I put all those links in his articles all those years, everybody. Did you know that? So anyway, uh, Rip Justin. I can't believe it's already been a year, but he's dead and gone. Um, but for people who really want to know about the history of the 21st century in terms of American foreign policy, how about, you know, snorting up some cocaine and staying up for three days reading Raimondo and catch up? I think you'd do yourself a big favor. Is that appropriate to say? I'm not going to edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look, you can sign up for my show at scotthorton.org. Check out my institute with Pete. And Sheldon and the boys at libertarianinstitute.org. Read my book, Fool's Errand, Time Down the War in Afghanistan. And uh, listen to me on the radio on Sunday mornings on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. And I think that's it. Scott, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. I want to thank Scott for returning to the show. That's it. Be back in a few days with another episode. Take care. And bye. Freedom.